in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and they'll give you a Bible and then you can read the Word of God as well as hear it. It'll have double the impact as a result. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, the word of the Lord. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not, uh, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done for me. He's not preparing them for a second offering. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for of necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, that is the Gentiles, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. 
Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for our relationship with you. It means everything to us to know you, to walk with you, to serve you, to make you known. Thank you for the wonderful, wonderful God that you are. And we pray that in the privacy of our relationship with you this morning, that you would use this word, these verses that we've read here today, to speak to us about the things that are important to you, Lord, and becoming increasingly unimportant to the world all around us today. We have heard the world's voice all week long. Now we treasure the opportunity to sit at your feet, Jesus, to hear your voice speaking into our lives. And we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The culture of the nation that we live in and that God has called us to represent him in is a culture that is very, very self-oriented and it nurtures the love of self. It's gone far beyond that now. It nurtures and um, very, very strongly to the point of selfishness itself. And we live in a culture that teaches us to be consumed about our rights, about our freedoms, that there's nothing more important in life than our rights and our freedoms. There's nothing more fulfilling in life than exercising our rights and our freedoms all the time, whatever the consequences. And so the air of life around us is constantly filled with the sound of our rights. Today there's the constant talk of women's rights, employees' rights, employers' rights, gay rights, First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, abortion rights. And then if people have exhausted being consumed with their own rights, they can then move on to animal rights and take up that cause if they want. And as Christians, we can come to believe that our rights and our liberties and our freedoms are the most important thing in the world, when in fact they simply are not. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul reveals to us two very, very important areas in our lives in which it is vital for us as Christians to forego our rights when necessary. First, he tells us in verses 1 through 18 that we are always to forego any right 
or Christian liberty that we have that would harm the effectiveness or the fruitfulness of our service to God. And then second in verses 19 through 23, he tells us that we should always forsake any right or any liberty that we have as necessary for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of winning people to Christ. Now, Paul is continuing to build on what he began to speak about in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, where uh, he made the point that when it comes to the expression of our Christian liberties, love is always to trump knowledge. And so now he moves from things offered unto idols, the eating of meat, taking this subject now into the area of ministry and into the area of soul winning and human souls. In verse one, verses 1 through 18, Paul tells us that he made his rights as an apostle of secondary importance to the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of his ministry. And in verses 1 through 7, he states his rights as an apostle. And he gave two great proofs for his apostleship. In verses 1 and 2, apparently there were some in the church at Corinth who were saying that Paul wasn't really an apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12. And there were a lot of factions in Corinth. People were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And so... Uh, Whenever you're a part of one group, you find it necessary to put down another group. And there was a group that uh, elevated these other men in their own minds, and they found it necessary to put uh, Paul down. And the proofs that he gave for his apostleship, he said, first of all, he had seen Jesus, which was understood even by the original apostles, the first apostles, to be a requirement for being an apostle. The second proof that he gives for his apostleship is that his ministry had been supernaturally effective in Corinth and elsewhere, that God was supernaturally blessing it. And in blessing Paul's ministry, the Lord was simply confirming the authenticity of Paul's claim to be an apostle. And so... Corinth was a very, very difficult place to establish a church. God had done it through the Apostle Paul, revealing him to be sent by God, and that's what an apostle is. It literally means one who is sent uh, by God. And so Paul was basically saying to the church at Corinth, if you want proof of my apostleship, then just simply look in the mirror. And that was very, very true. Paul then states three rights that he had as uh, an apostle in verses 3 through 6, and he speaks in verse 4, number 1, of the right of maintenance, the right that he had to be supplied with food and uh, with drink, the necessities of life, by any church that was hosting him for some special purpose, some spiritual purpose. So when we invite someone to come and minister here at Calvary Chapel of Modesto, we supply for all of their needs, uh, a place to stay. Uh, we don't allow them to pay for their meals while they're here. 
We provide for their transportation, and then we pay them an honorarium. Uh, That's our responsibility. We couldn't live with ourselves if they came on their own dime from who knows where around the world to minister to us, and we didn't supply their needs. And and so that was just the way that uh, things ought to be handled. Their responsibility is to be willing to come and minister in the name of the Lord Our responsibility as those who are receiving then that ministry from them is to make sure that their needs are met. Paul then declared further in terms of his right as an apostle in verse 5. He had a right not only to be supported with the necessities of life, but he had a right to bring a wife along, that her expenses should have been paid uh, as well, just as was being done apparently for the other apostles. And then third, he contends in verse 6 that he had a right to devote his full time to the ministry of God's word, that is to uh, earn a living from the gospel without having to have a side job uh, on the side in order to support himself for his uh, material needs. And then Paul, in verses 8 through 14, he defended his right to receive support as an apostle. And he used five arguments for his right to receive support as an apostle. So it's like he calls five witnesses to the witness stand to confirm what he was saying to the church at Corinth. Obviously, they're hesitant. They're a very carnal church. It's embarrassing that Paul has to even do this, but uh, he does it. And so he calls these, uh, defends his right by first of all declaring that what he's asking for here is, comes from, is illustrated everywhere in everyday uh, experiences in life, verse 7. He says, speaking of soldiers, when soldiers go off to war, Uh, They go off to do a lesser thing than what an apostle does or a minister of the Lord does. And yet no government sends men off to war and then expects them to pay for their weapon and pay for their uniform and to act, live in the military, fight a war, and still be keeping some kind of a job back home in order to uh, uh, support himself as a soldier. He uses the illustration of a farmer. Farmers who plant a vineyard, they're supported by the fruit that it produces. And then he brings in ranchers or husbandmen or uh, dairymen in the same verse, talking about the fact that they're supported by the animals that they give their life to tending. And so Paul is likening clearly Christian work to Uh, being part army, it's part vineyard work, and it's part flock work. The second argument that he gives for defending his right to receive support as an apostle, verses 8 through 12, is he argues from the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God taught that when an ox was being used to drag a threshing sled across any grain that had been harvested, put on a rock surface. An oxen would then pull these heavy threshing sleds over the grain in order to separate uh, the chaff or the hard 
outer covering of the hull away from the meat of the grain, that they were not to muzzle the ox when they did that. The ox was to be free to eat. Uh, The stalks of the grain was free to eat the grain uh, as well. In other words, God said, you're not allowed to partake of the fruit of even an animal's labor and not supply its needs. And Paul uses that passage to teach that a minister who's been called by God to give his life fully toward the advancement of the kingdom of God, he also has a right to partake of the material blessings that often accompany a healthy ministry. And so if God has set up such a protection for animals, Paul contends, then how much greater is his concern uh, for people and specifically for his servants? He then argues in verse 13 from Old Testament practice. In the Old Testament law, the Levites and the priests were provided for their daily needs were provided for uh, by the offerings that were given by the people to God. People did not bring their offerings to the temple to support the priests and the Levites. That wasn't their business. They brought their offerings in order to offer them to God. God then said, here's what I want to do with my offerings. I want a portion of those offerings to then be used for the support of my servants at the temple. And so God made sure that even the priests and the Levites, those that ministered under an inferior covenant, the covenant of the law of Moses that they were taken uh, care of, and Paul was basically contending that how much does God now have a lesser concern for the apostles that he's appointed to be the messengers of a new covenant, a greater covenant that was brought into the world and provided by the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross? And of course, the answer is, of course not. In the fourth, in verse 14, he argues from the very teaching of Jesus, and he saves kind of his weightiest argument uh, for the last, for Jesus himself taught that a workman was worthy of his work and uh, worthy of his wages, is how Jesus put it twice, once in Luke's gospel and also in Matthew's gospel. And so with that, he just rests kind of this airtight case on the issue, the principle of which he states there in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And then sadly, Paul stated that they had readily supported uh, the other apostles and other Christian workers, but they had failed to support him. The church of Philippi and other churches supported Paul, but Corinth, uh, who owed the very existence of that church to God's work through the apostle Paul, uh, never ever supported him up to this point. It must have been uh, pretty quiet in that um, evening service, that Sunday evening service at Corinth, when this letter was opened up and they got to this chapter a real sense of, I think, kind of sanctified shame would have fallen over anyone who had any sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, to how stingy they had been uh, to Paul. Very, very embarrassing. 
And then just when you think, as Paul is laying all of this out, and some of you might even be thinking it now, that they're going to take a second offering, I guarantee you. Just when you think that Paul is now going to call on the church at Corinth to take a special offering for him or to hand out pledge cards to everyone to assure that he'll be supported, you know, in the coming year, he does a complete U-turn because the supreme point of the passage is not to lay a case for his right to be supported by them alone, though it does that. He didn't say all of that simply to make the point, uh, uh, that particular point. He said all of the things that he says here in order to make the bigger point that he's making here, and that was that though he had a right to that kind of support, he gave it up in order that that gave up that right for the sake of the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of his ministry. You notice that latter portion of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He says, nevertheless, he didn't use this right. Why? Lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. What in the world is he talking about? Well, just like today... In the ancient world, it was filled with conmen of all kinds. And there were no shortage of religious conmen, absolute quacks, charlatans that filled the ancient world. And they would just go from city to city. They would support their travels around the world uh, by uh, spouting out their particular teaching and then calling upon people to support them. And so there were lots of men who were going city to city, making money off of religion, all kinds of religions. And because Corinth was filled with all kinds of religious hucksters, people were naturally um, suspicious of them. And so when somebody would begin to speak of some religious something people would move away from them because they'd think somewhere in here is a hook. We've seen this over and over again. It isn't about their message. What they're really after is after our money. There's got to be a money grab here somewhere. So imagine how powerful it was when Paul came into Corinth And he began to preach the gospel there, and he began to tell people about Jesus. And then not only did he not attempt to take money for it, not only did he not receive an offering at any of these events that he was holding, but then they saw him day by day earn his living by making tents to then sell in order to supply for his physical needs. It had a powerful impact. And Paul had started the church in Corinth without receiving any support that he was rightly due because he knew that in the ministry environment of Corinth that that was a right that he would have to give up in order for his ministry there to be as effective as it could be and as fruitful as it could be. And so it is with every single minister who's interested 
and having their ministry be as fruitful and as effective as it can be, they will always give up every right and every liberty that they have that would adversely affect their effectiveness in that particular part of God's harvest field in the world. Paul states unequivocally in verse 14, he said, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But he chose, it was his choice to make, but he chose not to exercise that liberty so that he could reach, preach the gospel rather in Corinth without anyone ever being able to accuse him of doing so for material gain or for any other reason than to make Jesus and the good news of salvation known to them. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul reveals to us his sole motivation in being faithful to the ministry that God had called him to. He said, I didn't do this for money. He said, but because necessity is laid upon me. He said, yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. In other words, he, he was going to be faithful to God's ministry the ministry that God had called him to, no matter what, whether he was paid or whether he was neglected by other people in all of this. And I tell you, it's true of every ministry, minister that I know. Every pastor that I know, I only know two. I know quite a few. Every pastor I know who is being supported in the ministry would do exactly what they're doing if they were not supported even a penny. Now, don't tell their boards. Just kidding. Every one of them would do it. For the sake of being obedient to the call, they might not be able to do it as well. They might not be able to invest the time that they would like in overseeing a flock if they also had to do other things as well to put food on the table. But every one of them to a man that I know would, would do it. And again, Paul made his rights as an apostle of secondary importance to the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of his ministry. And I'll tell you, every Christian who's serious about serving the Lord and serious and... and and a sanctified concern for the fruitfulness of their ministries will do exactly the same. What are some examples in our culture, in this country, serving the Lord and having a desire, a concern that my time and what I'm doing would not be in any way its effectiveness or its fruitfulness unnecessarily be um, adversely affected because of some liberty that I'm engaged in. I think an example, as we spoke about just a little bit <clears throat> last week, I want to speak about it this week as well because it's a hot issue uh, today, and that is to raise, I raise the example of drinking alcohol uh, on the part of church leaders in our culture. 
Do we have the liberty to do so? Yes. I could argue a stronger case for that from the Scriptures than any one who would argue that uh, no Christian or even no pastor uh, could have uh, a sip of alcohol or whatever it might be, wine or something uh, like that. And so, yes, we do have the liberty, and not just pastors, but all of us in our service to the Lord. It's a liberty for Christians. But then as we think about how Paul viewed the great concern for the effectiveness of his ministry and that no liberty in his life would stumble anybody or reduce the effectiveness of his ministry, fruitfulness of his ministry, I think about our country here today and think as it relates to leaders who in their right mind, would make it an issue today. Uh, Let alone what many have done here today uh, in attempting to make it a badge of spirituality or a badge of liberty. Uh, Today, so many Christians and Christian leaders doing that now. And, And why in the world would someone take that hill that issue to fight and die on, to give it that kind of preeminence rather than just saying, I'm going to let that go. There's way too much baggage. That is like like spiritual dynamite. I'm going to let it go so that it doesn't hinder God's call upon my life, especially living in a nation where almost every person has been or has a friend or a loved one Uh, who's been a casualty of the abuse of alcohol. I know many young, I know that many young pastors and leaders are trying to lift the negative stigma on drinking alcohol today uh, by making that a focus of their ministry and uh, by drinking often and drinking openly, sometimes because they like it, sometimes because they're trying to make this bigger point and they want to remove the stigma of kind of stuffiness uh, concerning Christianity in the minds of their generation. Look, we drink as much as you drink and don't let that keep you from coming to church. But the statistics don't change in the United States, not from one generation to the other. And the fact remains that 16% of all people who take their first drink will not stop for the rest of their lives and, but become problem drinkers. That's one out of six. You ever watch someone play Russian roulette? on TV or some kind of a thing. I remember seeing it, I remember seeing it as a kid. I thought, who in their right mind exactly? Let me see. It's only one in six. I mean, they got six chambers. There's only one in six. Mm-hmm. I still don't like the odds. That's too final. And yet that's the odds. 16%, one in six, who take that first sip ultimately become problem drinkers as a result of that. The second problem is that fully 28% 
of 18 to 28-year-olds in the United States of America now say they are often or sometimes tempted by alcohol. That's one quarter to one-third who are struggling with the temptation of alcohol. Why in the world, though I have the liberty, would I ever want to make that a focus of the ministry or of my life or run any risk that someone would see me drinking alcohol? Why run the risk of harming the effectiveness or the fruitfulness of our ministries over so needless a thing. I think another thing that we have to be careful of for the, our effectiveness and fruitfulness in our ministries is to be careful of excessive displays of material wealth that then really harms uh, the fruitfulness and the effectiveness of a minister of the gospel. Paul gave people no reason to question his motives in this way. He conducted himself in such a way to say, you can say whatever you want about Paul, but nobody can say he's in it for the money. And Paul was careful about that. I think that sometimes poor entertainment choices that a Christian makes can really, really create a crisis for others and harm the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of their ministry. I'm amazed at the number of movies that are R-rated that are used in sermon illustrations today. I'll tell you, I struggle with that. I was listening to a series of teachings, and the man, everybody, 95% of you in the room would know the person's name. And he got up to teach his second session at this particular conference, and he explained to everyone that he had had trouble falling asleep, and so um, he watched a particular pay-per-view movie on, in his hotel room, and he proceeded to tell the name of the movie, and it was an R-rated movie. So we're not talking about clear play or some kind of a channel screening kind of censoring deal or something like that. And then he pulled an illustration from it. Well, I may be a weaker brother, but I have trouble with that. And because I read all the reports, it was a blockbuster movie, all of this, but, you know, here's the movie guide that says what's in it. All right, that's in it, so we don't watch that. And we have to be careful of those kind of things because it can really create a crisis inside of people that doesn't need to occur and a loss of respect for that kind of a minister or that kind of a, of a Christian. And not just pastors, but whether we're serving in high school campus ministry or the church that we attend or we're serving the family that we're a part of. I think we have absolute liberty as Christians to have political views, to hold strong political views, to be strongly identified with a political, a particular political party, to be vocal about our political views. I'm not talking about moral issues. I'm not talking about righteousness issues. Those are non-political issues. Those are righteousness issues. But things where people can have 
a difference of opinion legitimately concerning things. And yet here is a person, here they're in one camp, and it's all this and everything, and then pretty soon in, within their sphere of influence, they are viewed more dominantly by their political views than as a Christian. And that person, if we do that, is we're going to severely limit the number of people that we can reach or the number of people that will listen to us. I learned it years and years ago. Downtown, and when we were there and Dukakis was running against whoever, I just couldn't believe that a Christian could vote for Dukakis. See, for me, abortion is abortion. I'm not going to stand before the Lord someday and say, I voted for someone who has that as part of their platform. I can't do that. That's my conviction. That's a righteousness issue. That's not a political issue. And then the number of people that voted for Dukakis, voted for Dukakis. Even when he put that goofy helmet on, yeah, I voted for Dukakis in that tank. All right. I can make a big deal out of all this kind of stuff all the time, rant and rave over all of these different things. And then pretty soon there's going to be like 15% of this city that will be comfortable walking in the doors of this church. You think about actors and actresses that get too political in their views. They have an absolute right to do so. But then it complicates things for people who say, listen, I just want you to be an actor and an actress so I can go to the movies and forget about life for two hours. I don't want to know about all that baggage that's now attached to you. And for some people, it can drum them right out of making... $20 million a movie until they're just making a mere $12 million a movie. So life is hard all over, isn't it? But my point is this, is that we feel that in our own hearts as Christians toward other people where the stakes are not as high. In fact, the stakes are nothing. And so... It's wisdom for us to be wise about our liberties and to look at things and say, yes, I have a liberty, but will this harm the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of my ministry? And if it does, then to look hard and long at that. And Paul looked and said, related to Corinth, I will give up even my rights as an apostle. To reach these people. And I'll tell you, it's a very, very uh, good word from him. And so Paul took in all of these cultural distinctives of Corinth into account concerning his own liberties that he would or he wouldn't exercise. And it's important that we do uh, the same for the same reasons. I remember years ago, I uh, heard a story I think I spoke at a missions conference or something, true story, about two young women who moved to a particular foreign country and to a particular foreign city in order to be missionaries in that city. And each morning when they would wake up, 
they went out onto the second-story balcony off of their uh, bedroom in order to drink their coffee and have their quiet time. And they were completely unaware for the longest time that in that culture, only prostitutes drank their coffee on the balcony off the bedroom. And they could not figure out why no one would listen to them or even allow them to get close enough to them to share the gospel until they became aware of the uniqueness of the culture that God had put them in. Did they have liberty to continue to do that? Absolutely. But who in their right mind would do it if it was so harming to their effectiveness and their fruitfulness? Now, we make our final point here in verses 19 through 23. The second reason Paul gives for readily foregoing his liberties was for the sake of winning souls to Christ. Paul gave up every right and every liberty that he had if he felt that the exercising of it would even remotely create an obstacle to an unsafe person in listening to the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus for salvation. There wasn't a right he wouldn't give up in an instant in order to win someone to Christ. Paul understood the value of a soul. And Paul wasn't interested in getting saved and then now I want to see how self-centered a life I can live and still go to heaven. He never ever lost sight of the lost. And he uses that word win five times on these five verses. Win, 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 win. Then he uses the word save in verse 22 to communicate the same thing. And Paul was a man who valued people and their souls more highly than his rights. How refreshing it is. Every servant of the Lord, we ought to do the same thing. I don't think anyone will be a great soul winner who is more concerned with their own rights than with the unsaved world that is watching their life and listening to their life. I don't know, is there a greater blessing in the whole world than to win someone to Christ and then to watch their whole life and world change as a result of that? And Paul said, when I see that, when I see what the gospel does in a human being, there is no liberty in my life that is more important than that to me. No liberty I wouldn't lay aside in order to experience that. He said to the unsaved Jews, he became as a Jew, verse 20, in order to win them to Jesus. So Paul never accommodated the message. He never changed the gospel for anyone. But he, he did adapt his liberties and his approach in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. So when he shared the gospel with Jews, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures. He went to their place of worship. He went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue on their holy day, on the Sabbath day. And when he, desiring to reach the Jews, Paul, I'm convinced, 
did not tent make on the Saturday in the city where he's trying to reach Jews. He did not openly violate their scriptures as an expression of his liberty if it cost him an audience with those folks where he could bring the gospel uh, to them. At lunchtime, when it was time to eat, he didn't pull out a ham sandwich or a BLT, eat it in front of them. He had the liberty to do it, have a wonderful BLT. It's fabulous. But instead, he probably ate the bread and the fish that they were eating. And he never made them violate their consciences in order to listen to him. He's very, very sensitive to lost people and what would lose him an audience to them. And he said in verse 21, to those without the law of Moses, that is Gentiles, he came to them as a Gentile. So when he's trying to meet, reach the Gentiles, he doesn't wear a skull cap or a yarmulke. He didn't wear a prayer shawl. He didn't make them honor the Sabbath day. Listen, this is, I, you, you want to hear the gospel? I'll only preach it on the Sabbath day. And by the way, you got to come to the synagogue to listen to it. He didn't do that. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't rebuke them for eating BLT sandwiches. And he didn't give them the impression that they had to become Jews in order to be saved. And he didn't make them come to the synagogue to hear the message of salvation. He went where they were. He knew, I'll find the Jews in the synagogue. Where will I find the Gentiles? In the marketplace. Money. Making money. And that's where he went to preach the gospel to them. He went to where they were in life. And when he did share the gospel with them, he didn't begin with the law of Moses, build a case for faith based upon the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament like he did with the Jews. He went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he spoke to them of God being their creator and the creator of all things. And then he went from there to introduce them to Christ. And he gave up his rights to bring the gospel to Corinth. He had a right. You think about the right. To Paul. Paul had a right to never go to Corinth. The Pharisee of the Pharisees. The Jew of the Jews. Raised in just unbelievable righteousness. The moral standard he'd been raised in. And how he viewed Gentiles. Was that they were just... Dogs, because they live like dogs, by and large. And then here you have the center of Gentile sin, Corinth. He could have said, all right, I'll be a Christian. I don't mind that. And I'll I'll serve you, Lord. But I have a liberty to never go to Corinth and never put myself in that kind of an environment. Just as a person could say, I have a liberty and a freedom not to go to San Francisco or Modesto or Escalon or Keys. He had a right to never go to Corinth. He had a liberty to say no to that. And yet he laid aside his rights in order that Corinth would hear the gospel 
And that was not an easy thing for Paul uh, to do. He could have lived a safe, protected life, lived out his three score and ten in peace, not ended up beheaded by Nero at the end of his life or Rome. He had the right not to go there, and yet he forsook that right and gave it up, even to go to Corinth to preach the gospel there. And he said to those who were weak, he became as the weak, verse 22. And he's talking here about the weaker legalistic Christian, basically just saying, as we saw last week, he's willing to forego any liberty that he had in order to be an influence toward their maturity and their growing as Christians. And so Paul took the audience into account where the audience was one person or was a hundred people, and he forsook any liberty necessary so that the gospel might be heard and it might be received across all the broad diversity of mankind. And of course, in all of this, he is just simply being like his Lord, being like Jesus. Paul could have said, I have a right as a Christian to never to go to so filthy and degraded and debased a place is Corinth. And Jesus could have exercised his right and said, I have a right to not be born into the brokenness and the fallenness and the depravity of that fallen world that I had no part and it becoming what it has become. And yet he laid aside his right, rights to come into this world that you and I might be saved. And Paul put it this way in his letter to the church at Philippi. And it's a rebuke of selfishness, which is the great threat to all of this in our lives. He said, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ... And there is. If any comfort of love, and there is. If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind esteem each other better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This passage is such an important 
pushback against the selfishness that is being so strongly nurtured and promoted by our culture and that if we are not on guard related to it, will infiltrate our own Christian lives. And a sure sign that it has is that when I will elevate any liberty that I have and make it more important than the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of the thing that God has called me to do for His glory in this world, or I make that liberty more important than the soul of any human being in this world. And it's good to hear that. And we need the pushback. It does a good thing in us to think about these things when more and more even Christians are going crazy over their rights and they have no idea the value of the greater things they are throwing away to run madly down that path. The things that are priceless, the things that are infinite, the things that will one day allow us to hear that well done from the mouth of the Lord. God help us. It's a wonderful passage that does a wonderful and a needed work in our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for this word from your word this morning. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just brood upon it in our hearts. Long after we leave this room, Lord, if there's anything, any liberty that any of us are demanding and it's affecting the fruitfulness of our ministry or we don't care about what an unsaved person would think of us as a result of that, we pray that the conviction and the weight of your Holy Spirit would not be lifted off of us until we get things reversed and we see the th things the way, Jesus, you see them and the way that Paul saw them. And we pray that you would use this passage to protect us and to equip us, Lord, for every conversation that we have with every individual, help us to look at that person individually, to recognize what would be harmful to them in some way, and to care about them, Lord, more than we care about ourselves, and to lay aside whatever we need to lay aside. And so take this equipping and make it a part of making us even more effective and fruitful as you bring all of these divine appointments across our path in the coming weeks and months and years as we await your return. And we ask all these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen.